Discover new mind and body hacks to thrive as a human today. The Institute for Aliveness is here to teach you all the things you never learned in school. From talking poop, sex, childhood trauma, emotional intelligence, psychedelics, and of course, fasting and food. This is a podcast that changes lives. Join your host, Dr. Andrea Page, as she travels seven continents to find the most captivating, impactful humans for you. Hey, uh, so I sit down with my friend Robert Rubenstein here to talk about emotional intelligence. So how can we each take our own hero's journey and self-reflect to a way where we are showing up differently and more and we are showing up more integrated every single day that passes. This was a really fun conversation and a pretty good summary of the work that we do at Tifa. If this is work that you would like to get into facilitating more directly or want to master, please come our way. We start every January for our 18 months. Good afternoon from our studio in Amsterdam. We're honored today we have Andrea Page, who's dialing in from Florida, so I'm really happy uh, today because uh, I'm in my last day of a seven-day fast that Andre was very kind uh, to convince me to do. She's in her, I think, 18th day, uh, overachiever. So often called the Wendy Rhodes, if you haven't watched Billion, she's the Wendy Rhodes of the health and wellness, except that she has much better social skills. So if you're, for those of you who are on a different planet and never heard of um, Andrea Page, I'm going to let her introduce herself and tell you what is she trying to do in when she says hacking the body. Andrea, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Robert, for having me. I'm really happy to be here. Hello to everyone watching. I wish I could see your face. I want to take a second to regulate my nervous system and I invite you to do it with me. Um, and I'm going to imagine I'm looking right in your eyes and taking a deep breath and creating a field of coherence, which can sound really far out there. But luckily, our friends at the HeartMath Institute are doing work and studying the, the field around the heart that it is as wired with neurons, if not more wired than the brain. And so this is, you know, this is very edgy research that um, from a isolationist perspective, um, the perspective from which we look at religion and science and politics and the modern world, we wouldn't be able to see. But uh, a field, which is a morphogenetic field, this is part of um, my study and my specialty. It's what kind of congeals a group of people or an online conference or a family together. And whenever there's a certain movement in one part of the field, there'll be a movement in another. And um, so, yeah, so I welcome I welcome this field and I'm really grateful to connect with you, even if it's just me talking and I don't get to meet you. But I hope I hope that that will bring us together at one point. And um, I open myself out to anyone in the TBLI community. If you want to reach out afterwards, I'm happy to have a chat. Um, yeah. So you want me to introduce myself, Robert? <laughs> uh, you're muted. You're muted. <laughs> wait, wait, Robert, you're muted. <laughs> no one, I, you know, I looked at your CV and no one actually believes that you're 95 years old looking yeah. this great. Uh, but it's all due to your hacking your body. So you've done so many things, you know, eight languages, climb Mount Everest barefoot twice in the same day and all kinds of other, other things. 
tell us about this journey which led you you know you know were you uh 200 kilos when you were a kid in high school and teased and then you just decided to sort things out yeah 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 cool so that that makes that makes sense um i have not climbed everest barefoot twice in the same day in case anyone's like who's this bullshitter it's robert not me um yeah, I, I was never 200 pounds. Um, was I teased in my early childhood years? I think I was feared. Um, I got in my high school superlative, you know, it's what they vote for most likely to. I got most likely to take over the world um, and teacher's pet. And both a lot of laudances that I'm proud of. But uh, yeah, I, I knew at the age of 16 that I was to become an expat. I grew up in the U.S. and um Essentially, I thought L.A. was the end of the earth until I spent a summer abroad and I was like, oh, my God, other people have different ways of seeing the world. And it was this big moment at the age of 16 where uh, I was able to tap into something beyond my conditioning. And that's something that globalization has brought us. I've been actively involved in traveling the world over the past 15, 16 years and have been able to see globalization happening firsthand. Um, yeah, I've traveled to more than 100 countries and um, pick up languages along the way, um, fluent in four, five, and have a few others that I can professionally get around in. And that's obviously language is the eye to a culture. And um, in my undergraduate studies, I studied political economy. And at a very young age, I became a hard-headed political economist searching for another way of organizing society, what was beyond capitalism. Um, and I wanted to become a diplomat, but then uh, very clearly understood that anything that I would do on this world stage of nation, capital, state was something that would be out of integrity. And uh, throughout my whole life, I think integrity has been the biggest driver. And so um, moving forth, I kind of went into, you know, into the jungles and the rainforest, lived in tree houses. Um, I made a dedication that I wanted to spend uh, my 20s studying the parallels of the human body and the earth body. And that's what I did. Um, and once I realized that I would never, could never work for the man, uh, I found that I was communicating health and yoga and different embodiment arts and self-awareness, essentially teaching consciousness was something that I felt okay or in integrity about doing. And um, a career kind of got its had its way with me. I had a 10 year career in health and yoga and things like that, uh, which culminated at its height at uh, directing and managing the wellness center at the largest retreat center in the world uh, in Bali. We had up to 7,000 people per week walking through our doors and it was a massive operation. My specialty in long-term fasting um, was really a resurgence in the world and that's what I was known for professionally largely. And later on in the years of my career, which brings us to our topic today, uh, I started becoming way more aware of the the psychosomatic element to health. And um, I had done a master's of science in ethnobotany, looking at the relationship between people and plants. Um, as Robert knows, I'm a big advocate for the world of psychedelic therapeutics and um, really psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and the promise that it has to deal with the plight of the modern man, which is quite a sad one. Um, and that is what my work is dedicated to is, is making humanity better. And so um, fast forward and uh, after my doctorate in naturopathy and working in the field, I was like, wait a minute. No, this things aren't just physical. 
right? Most problems in our life have to do with early childhood trauma in the first seven years of life. And it can be capital T trauma. Some of you might have had parents that beat you or were alcoholics, or you might have been raised in single family homes or, you know, there, you might have had what should look like the perfect family, right? Maybe we have some legacy families here where every legacy family that I know is pretty imbalanced um, and has a lot of skeletons in the closet and secrets. And um, the work that I do with people is, is to just like take off all the armor that we've put out throughout our whole life about who we think we are, what we think we should be doing, how we think we should be showing up. And as we do that, um, we, for the first time in our life, have a breath of honesty, that little taste of integrity. And so um, in the later years of my career, getting involved in psychosomatics and deep trauma work, understanding that by virtue of that, what happens in here manifests here and that by going here and touching, you know, here, we can um, allow ourselves a different future that we don't have to feel how we're feeling today, five years from now. And so there's lots of different ways to climb that mountain. Uh, fasting, long-term fasting is one of them. And so uh, that's what that's what Robert's doing right now. He's he's climbing that mountain of self-discovery of the body. And it is it is a, a massive teacher you know, because when you witness and watch your body heal itself, when you divorce yourself from this food addiction, which everyone has, everyone today has an, has an eating disorder um, because we have no idea of where our food comes from or really how to source it or what we're supposed to be eating. You know, you don't see any other species going around and saying, well, I need a nutritionist, right? It's supposed to be something innate and natural and, and modern humans are we're so disconnected, not only from the earth, from our source of food, but from one another and from ourself. And so the work that I do is, is bringing back connection. And after, you know, a decade of, of teaching consciousness um, in the end of 2017, I went off grid for a few months. Very few people knew where I was uh, because before that I had lived a very public career and, I went into silence for 40 days and decided to leave my career. And, um, you know, lots of people were like, how can you do that? You're just going up and up. And I never wanted it, right? Because it was about the ego. And, um, yeah, and I started, I, I changed consciousness to emotional intelligence. And I started working uh, with early stage startups, with high power CEOs, and essentially people of influence, celebrities, uh, to work on that stuff that other people won't talk to them about, right? To, to take them to the place of discomfort, because it's in that place of discomfort that we find growth, not in the place of let me placate you and let's keep things nice and fun and easy and you're doing great, um, that it's really cutting below the surface. And so um, I had a great run in that, really fun doing consulting work. Um, felt very fulfilled, made a significant impact. Um, and, you know, those things that the most common feedback from my work is I can't tell you how much you've changed my life, right? There's no, there's no words for it and there's no monetary value that could ever be a part of it. And so um, along the way, um, lots of different things happened. I started becoming active in the decentralization revolution and I'm, I'm sure there's lots of... Um, people here who might be involved in the revolution of decentralization, the first um, output of it being blockchain technology through cryptocurrencies and different things like that. But really the, the, what I was searching for in a post-capitalist world I found um, in 2017 at Burning Man of all places. 
uh, at Camp Decentral in the presentation of um, this new idea of how we can have technology to organize humans in a way that preserves our sovereignty um, and our agency and our, our, thus our responsibility to and for ourselves, our ability to respond to life rather than be disempowered and take a bunch of medication and be told what to do and have that sense of inner authority given away to institutions, whether it be the government or hospitals or pharmaceuticals or doctors or whatever it is, um, psychologists. And so the work that I do is really about taking up that agency and emotional intelligence is the backbone of that. Um, yeah, so um, then uh, the past two years I spent building uh, kind of the team of Jedi warriors of high, high level, um, super high achieving, highly integrated practitioners who are coming from that place of uh, embodiment and full integrity. Um, so I run an institute now. We're active in uh, 35 countries teaching these things and doing full spectrum embodiment work. And um, the students upon graduation will own the institute. So it is disrupting kind of a capitalist paradigm and um, rebirthing the collective of the idea of, you know, the old African proverb, you want to go fast, go alone, you want to go far, go together. And so uh, we're, yeah, we have lots of different projects in the world. Um, and my passion is great societal change. And so I work with small country governments, royal family nations to um, institute a paradigm in preventative health to make sure that 30 years from now, we'll look back and say, oh, fuck, that was a really good decision we made to, to take agency and responsibility rather than going down the path of, you know, more allopathy more political dissonance, more disembodiment. And um, yeah, so that's a little bit of my, my intro. Does that suffice, Robert? Yeah, I, I had some questions. You use the word epigenetics a lot. So just for okay. the audience, explain what is that? Beautiful, yeah. And I also, I wanna talk about the tenets of emotional intelligence as well. Um, so epigenetics, epa means beyond or above in Latin, and uh, genetics is your genetic code. And there is this foundational belief. Um, it's a little bit like nature and nurture or, um, you know, fate versus free will, these kinds of dualistic uh, paradigms where we say, okay, is it your genes that you were born with this, where it's the BRCA gene or a gene that, you know, codes for something else that will make you sick, whatever you do in life. Um, is it hereditary? Or is it habit? And um, the work of epigenetics from my mentor, Bruce Lipton, who hopefully many of you know, and if you don't, I highly recommend you start with the book, The Biology of Belief. Uh, but Bruce at Harvard in the 60s kind of founded the field of epigenetics. And he says that the cells were his teachers, um, that as he would look into a Petri dish as a geneticist, he, he saw that it wasn't the cells and their genetic encoding that caused the outcome of whatever it was that was gonna happen. It was actually the cell culture itself in which the cells grew. And so by creating a culture, and that's, we go back to the field, the morphogenetic field that I referenced at the beginning, that that is really what creates true change. And so mm, epigenetics is a science that understands that it's actually your lifestyle and it's the way in which you live and the decisions that you make every day from the next breath you take, how deep it is, to the next story that you tell yourself in your head about I'm good enough or I'm not good enough or I'm worthy or I'm not worthy or you're beautiful today or you look horrible or you're fat or 
or you have to get this done or else, right? Go, go, do, 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 or nah, just chill or take some more drugs or whatever story you're telling yourself, right? We, this, we're humans. We tell ourselves stories and um, those stories create our fate. And so until we take authorship, authority of what's being written in the stories between our ears, you know, then, then we're very much just kind of floating through existence. And um, that's, that's not the future that I've chosen for myself, nor anyone that I'm involved with. And um, it's a really powerful thing to, to take responsibility for everything in your life. And this is what emotional intelligence is about. When we look at social awareness and self-awareness, we're looking at, um, you know, anything happens. And, and I don't know if the chat feature works, but if anyone wants to write a bad situation that just happened to them, we can kind of um, go through it and um, hash it out. And the, the common example that I give is someone steps on your toe. Has anyone ever had someone step on your toe? And your reaction to that shows everything. Because it is, oh, gosh, wow, right? You jerk or whatever your reaction might be, right? Do you get angry? Is anger the first thing that comes? And if it is, I mean, anger is always there, mask sadness. And so if, you know, there's a lot of anger running in your life, like, bless you, there's nothing wrong with that. Great. You're, you have life force energy flowing through you. But the thing is that that anger is, is masking sadness, right? There's something there that is very human that hasn't been looked at and felt, right? Because we, we chase we chase pleasure and we avoid pain. And so the massive avoidance out there, yeah, we are doing ourselves a disservice by not allowing ourselves to be fully human. And that's, um, that's a travesty that will only produce further anger and further masked sadness. Um, and so this, this self-awareness is, the first tenant of emotional intelligence. Um, the second is, is self-management because then someone comes in and steps on your toe, <laughs> right? And you're like, oh, I feel that. Oh yeah, wow, that energy through my body, I'm, I'm alive. And then it's like, okay, so I can manage myself rather than immediately going into anger. And then the third tenant of emotional intelligence is social awareness. Uh, and these are, these are tenants, um, described by the academic Daniel Goleman, who's known as the leader in the field of emotional intelligence. And um, it's something that is being appropriated easily by um, kind of mainstream, especially business culture today. So it's it's a fun thing to talk about because these are all spiritual tenets, right? It's all consciousness. Um, yet when we talk about them very, you know, uh, sterile in this academic way, it's more um, able to be digested. But social awareness, then when someone steps on your toe and, and you say, oh my God, I'm alive, right? That's self-awareness. Okay, I'm going to regulate myself, self-management, so that I don't react. And then social awareness would, would be giving the other the benefit of the doubt. So this is like golden rule stuff. It's all these proverbs about how to be a good person, whether you're getting it from religion or any other kind of moral compass. Um, it's saying, you know what? That dude didn't mean to hurt me. He didn't mean to step on my toe, right? Maybe he's rushing to the delivery room because his wife's giving birth. Who knows? Right? There's probably a really good reason. No one's out to get me. And so this is another story that we tell ourselves. And a lot of my work, if you can't tell, is about destorying. Right? So if we tell ourselves the story that the world's out to get me, everyone's here to hurt me. Right? That's a Rechian personality pattern. One, actually, it's called the leaving or the schizophrenic, the one that um, doesn't feel safe, can't feel safe. 
And um, anyway, so in social awareness, the third tenant of emotional intelligence, we have an ability to give the other the benefit of the doubt. And I made a video several years ago that went viral that um, was really fun. I was riding my bike in Amsterdam, of all places, Robert. And um, I said, what if, what if everyone was on your team? What if everyone that you just haven't met yet was on your team? And you're just not looking at it that way. Right? What if everyone is conspiring in your favor? And this is, you know, this is a kind of a, a normal spiritual tenant of the universe is always conspiring in your favor. And uh, it's, it's up to us to kind of take that deep breath again and be able to look at it that way. Yeah, because it's it's we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. And that's really important because when you understand that you're looking through filters in the reality that you see, it's time then to look inside and do some of that detoxing work on any level, whether it's the body, mind or spirit. Um, and then the fourth, the fourth tenant of emotional intelligence is relationship management. And so that, that, you know, the one who stepped on my toe that comes forth, um, I go through that process of, oh, wow, I'm alive. Okay. Oh, wow. I feel that. And then I'm going to regulate myself so I don't project outside and, you know, be angry at him. And then from there, I have so much more space because I can say, well, wait a minute. He's on my team. This is happening right now because I'm meant to be slowing down. I'm not meant to be going so fast. Things are conspiring in my favor. And then in terms of how I interact socially, I'll be a much happier person because I've taken care of myself. I've authored right? My own story in my head. And I have agency um, over how I'm showing up in the world. And that's, that's what creates a world full of beautiful people and a world that we want to be a part of. You, you focus a lot on when you uh, initial conversations with the people that you meet or you engage or they reach out is about the fasting, the seven day, 10 day, in your case, 300 years fasting what is you know why specifically what is for you why you use fasting as a tool to kind of break through break down break yeah. up mm, beautiful so I, I talked a little bit before about um discomfort yeah discomfort is where growth happens so anyone and you can think do an inventory in your head of all the programs you're involved in all the communities all the book clubs all the whatever cycling group i don't know what you do in your life but if you think of them Think about the energy that's put into keeping you comfortable, keeping you, quote unquote, safe. Right. Think of all of that energy put in. And, um, you know, this is like the facade and it happens differently in Japan than it does in the United States than it does in Holland. You know how much we're willing to be nice and people please. And uh, if we kind of like diffuse that, take the air out of the balloon, then we come into a space where we have an opportunity to actually be honest. Right? and to be more in integrity. And um, that's the kind of world that I'm interested in. And definitely when some people are honest, they're mean. Um, and that's because there's, again, the anger masking the sadness. And if we can have compassion, right, which is the most important ingredient in the world uh, in how we interface with these people and, um, you know, approach through love. And, and again, giving the benefit of the doubt rather than assuming that someone's out to get you or assuming someone did wrong we actually get somewhere, we do something. Um, so fasting, to answer your question, Robert, is a space where uh, we have a massive radical physiological shift. And um, I was actually talking to someone yesterday who um, from Peru is, you know, an ayahuasquera and um, doses people with medicine, with psychedelic 
plant medicine. Um, and the training to be able to do that is so rigorous. And at the same time, I'm training a group of people that Robert's met on uh, how to guide people through fasting. And the training's the same. When you take someone into an altered state and fasting, what happens in your, in your physiology is an altered state. And you change one thing, it changes everything. And the way that we have to be delicate and interact with that kind of person, because we have a massive opening, a doorway, a gateway, is very much the same. And um, so, you know, I could I could do psychedelic medicine and dose people with psychedelic medicine and perhaps have similar or the same effects. But um, I choose sobriety because of the agency that I want someone to have. And um, pretty much all the work I do is taking uh, awareness of what's going on in the subconscious. Our subconscious is up to 95% of our everyday actions, you know, whether it's me reaching for this glass of water. Right, it's water, not vodka, by the way. Uh, that, everyone's like, oh, she doesn't drink vodka. I hear it now in the, in the gallery. That um, that is a subconscious action that I don't have to actively engage with or think about. And um, only 5% of our daily activity on a neurological level is from what we call the prefrontal cortex, which is what makes us human. It's what makes us be able to think outside of time, have a concept of past, present, future, or a concept of empathy or all of these things. And yet in our busy, 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 rush, rush, rush world, and in a world where we're largely disconnected from nature or from the idea of shutting down or stopping or, or you know, switching off, we have an override of activity in the amygdala, in the in the hindbrain, in this kind of stress center, um, in the stress response. And so the work that we do, whether it's, you know, let's sit down and have a meditation class or let's have an embodiment class where you come back to a state of deep calm inside and have the parasympathetic part of the autonomic nervous system more active. I'm sure many of you have heard of these concepts. I hope it's not like, oh, look at her and all the words that she knows. Um, I want you to be actively engaged with this. The parasympathetic is the rest and digest. Right? It's the um, it's the ability to just feel calm. And for many of you, you might uh, be wired or addicted to a glass of wine to make this happen. Um, if you want to go a generation earlier, millennial generation or later, it might be a joint that people use to make this happen, right? We have so many substances that we um, rely on and thus disempower ourselves because we rely on them to um, create the state that we want to feel, that we know we're meant to feel, which is just relaxed, finally. <sighs> And the state of fasting physiologically brings you directly into that parasympathetic state. It brings you into a state of calm and relaxation. And um, so between that and then between the habit change, again, you change one thing, you change everything and reaching for food or thinking about what you're going to have for dinner or emotional eating or, you know, just being bored. And so going to the cabinet or the refrigerator, these are things we all do, right? Myself included. There's no perfectionism here. Um, and when you we open do... up the candy jar next to your leg over there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever it is for you. And and we all have it. Like like think of what yours is. And if you can't think of it, and you're like I'm perfect, then we have work to do. You know. And if if you can think about it, then you're already doing the work, which is amazing. And um, when when we take that habitual reaching away. Right. Every time it comes up, you learn something about yourself. You're like, oh, wow, I really rely on this. And that's when, you know, that's when we we make the most learning, the greatest learning. And um, 
So taking one thing away, changing one thing changes everything because the amount of mindfulness that you have to take going from subconscious to conscious mind of every time you were to reach out for food, you're going to inadvertently bring that mindfulness to every other aspect of your life. You're showing up differently and the most primal part of your existence, feeding yourself. And so you're going to show up differently everywhere. And then depending upon how much fasting experience someone has, they'll get aware of what's happening in their bodies. So for example, Robert, like this is, you know, it's largely your first fast and at least for intentional conscious fast um, where you, you know, you've, you've been all in chosen to do this. And um, your second fast is very different. Your fourth fast is very different. Your 10th fast is very different. And this is a practice just like yoga is a practice. It's a practice of self-awareness and it's a practice of embodiment. It's a practice of empowerment of realizing that like you now have the greatest gift available to humanity right? you have the ability to heal yourself and that's not something that's taught in school but in the schools that um, I'll be involved in in the future it will be taught because it's an integral part of of not only the human experience but any experience this sense of agency that we can literally heal ourselves um, and and you all know this at a level of um, puppy dogs or kitty cats or any other pets that you might have when they're sick they don't eat if you've had a toddler who doesn't feel well, they push food away. They know it's best for them. And it's only, you know, in our modern adult addicted and um, very conflicted human experience that we we just numb with food and we numb and we numb and we numb and we can't feel. We also can't feel that we maybe shouldn't eat. And I don't want to discount you. I'm sure many of you actually have had the experience where um, you've been ill and you've said, you know what, oh, I can't eat right now. Right? Or maybe it was a, a romantic relationship breakup. You know, you can't eat right now. And a lot of that has to do with the state of the nervous system. But more than anything, it has to do with the fact that you understand that up to 70% of all available energy that would normally go to digestion, when you don't eat, instead will go to heal and cleanse at a cellular level and will also give you back a sense of what we call prana in the Vedic lore in yoga, uh, vitality, a sense of aliveness. Yeah. It's um, for those of you who haven't done any fast, just to mention, it's not very hard to do if you want to do it. It's just really hard to do if you don't want to do it. So this idea that I'm going to be starving and I need this food, that didn't happen. It didn't happen the first time I did it in Thailand or the second time. So I would highly recommend everyone give it a try. Um, but you made a very interesting point about thinking everyone is on our team. Mm. It's a great idea. I haven't experienced that, that that inclusive team where everybody wants to grab the shovel. Let me help you dig that hole. You know, it's most people who want to, the old story that, you know, everybody wants to come to the party, but nobody wants to bring the chairs. So it's nice that you have this idea of everyone is on our team as a concept, but you actually see that and experience that. So there's a difference here. There's a difference here. And I would say by um, people not bringing the chairs that they're being on your team. So when I say your team, I'm not talking about your ego's team, Robert. I'm talking about your spirit's team, right? That idea that everything in your life is conspiring for your growth, including this conversation right now. And if you want to get really meta, then it's a matter of, of like the story that we're telling. And you said that's not been my experience. And I know enough about your business career to know that there's been, you know, some hardships. So you've, you've met people who 
are unsavory or seem unsavory. And at some level, like if I were working with you professionally and I won't throw you under the bus because I don't have consent to go here, but at some level, this has to stem back to our fathers. Usually when it has to do with authority and business things and has to stem to that relationship, it has to do with things in early childhood and stories that we told ourselves then. And until we do that work, it will continuously feel like life events somehow stunt us. And um, the life that I aim to live um, is one where we're continuously playing. I mean, you've heard of this work as play kind of thing, but when you can engage and interact with life in a way where it's like, hmm, I need to set up these chairs and no one's helping set up the chairs. Am I going to choose to tell a story that no one cares about me and they don't want to help and that my work is worthy, but no one else sees that? Or... Am I going to take agency and say, okay, these people aren't setting up the chairs with me right now because I'm meant to learn this hard lesson of what it was like for me not to have planned that someone helps me to set up the chairs. All right, so next time I'll plan better. Or is this a time where the universe is preventing, presenting me with an opportunity to use my voice and say, hey, people, I'm going to turn on this awesome music. Come set up these chairs with me. You know, and, and you can be an active role in everyone conspiring in your favor. And I mean, I would vote for the latter because I find it brings joy. I'll never forget when I was living in Amsterdam one time, I locked myself out of my apartment and uh, which is a very anti thing to do. And um, I rallied all the neighbors. <laughs> so we had like the 70 year old woman from the fourth floor coming down and the next door neighbor and they were all help trying to help me. And um, more often than not, especially in the age of Corona, people are lonely. And they're searching for any excuse for connection. And so if you offer an open heart and real, true human connection, it'll be like moths to the flame. And, and we do believe that you'll be able to get help from, from anyone or anywhere you, you want. And um, often when you speak truth, and I can own this, when I speak truth to people, it doesn't matter how much money they have in their bank account or how many influencers they have on their Instagram that... When you're telling a real, true human story, anyone has time for that. Yeah. You, um, you're building this army of Jedi warriors from uh, the, the Institute of uh, Aliveness. For Aliveness. For Aliveness, excuse me. So what is, what's, the big, what's the big plan? You know, are you going to take over the capital with uh, Donnie? Yeah, I mean, the plan is nothing to do with this country, uh, with the United States. Um, this has been a place that I've never wanted to work. I mean, the, the Maya, as we call it in the Vedic lore in, in yoga, the illusion, Maya's illusion here is, is so, so strong. And there's such a, such a strong armor and a facade built in front of people here that it's really difficult to do this kind of work. Um, and it's much easier in other parts of the world. Um, and... You know, who am I to say that? Maybe that's something to do with my own childhood and my own trauma, and I can own that, and I'm actively uh, exploring that for sure. But um, as we see it, the, the institutions built here are um, really not built for the people. And we can contrast that easily to Northern Europe. And, um, you know, you know how it is to live in Holland and other places where institutions are built much more for people and to serve society at large. And so that um, entry point is really important to understand that uh, this Jedi, this Jedi force that's being built through the Institute for Aliveness um, will, yeah, do do many things. But whatever it is that they do, they'll be doing it from that place of integrity, and that's why we haven't um, 
you know, change the world. I was just at COP26 and, you know, you have tons of environmental activists. There was a girl that I worked with um, maybe four years ago. She works a lot with um, one of the, the primary earth activist youth organizations and does a lot of demonstrations. And it wasn't until she kind of, you know, looked at the trauma that that's caused and what she's inherited from her lineage and um, really sat with the pain that it is to be an activist that she's actually starting to make a difference. Otherwise, it's just yelling. And so whatever kind of work or change we want to create in the world, it has to come from this place. And that's like also um, my first consulting foray was um, for blockchain and AI developers. And my tagline was developing the developers. It was this kind of understanding that you will encode into the future who and how you are now. And we know this through selective AI and the fact that we program you know, to recognize white faces more than any other color skin faces and different things like this. But um, that on a whole nother level, if you want to call it on a level of emotional intelligence, um, it's so important that we we know where we're running energy from and we know what it's about. And um, so I've, I've given you a full non-answer to your question <laughs> of what am I what am I training the, the Jedi warriors for? What's the, um, what's the big, what do you want to be when you grow up? Oh, do I want to grow up, Robert? <laughs> What's the end goal that you want to achieve with yeah. the work that you're doing? Yeah, the mission. I mean, I'd like to see a world where humans are human again, where we, um, you know, we remember all those things that we weren't taught in school, whether it's the fact that we're meant to be pooping once per meal per day, right, which is a big newsflash to most of you. That was what I was known for earlier in my career as the poo guru. Um, to yeah, to to understanding this emotional arc, to understanding our neurology, and understanding how we run our energy, understanding what a true human story is and can be, and um, that we can take agency in our life to um, author how we live, and um, this work in emotional intelligence or coaching or whatever you want to call it uh, is the real work. And I would like to see more people doing the real work. So, you um, you push yourself a lot. You're you know if you, you're going to 17 day fast or 30 day fast, three months you know shutting yourself off, no talking, you know running I don't know 500 miles a day or, or whatever the the challenge is. When is enough? Mm, yeah. <laughs> Are you going to make me cry now, Robert? <laughs> Um, I mean, this is, this is, a part of it is um, who I am as a person. And I get that. I get that. But when is enough? Yeah, when the world's awake. I mean, this is definitely work that, um, and you can hear it in my voice, like, this is the real humanity. This is what I've been sitting with, mm. of, of, like, when is enough and how much, um, you know, how how do I push others too hard as well? And this is something we're looking at at the Institute because, um, yeah, you're quite strict. You're holding quite strict. high standards, right? But this yeah. is how you create standards yeah. is, is by. But some people are not at a level where they can deal with that. Yeah. yeah, And that's fine. And that's why we're, we're not here for beginners. Like I'm not here to work with beginners and there's so many other better teachers, you know, who can, who can, in some ways coddle and love in different ways and so i don't have an answer to your question um i guess time will tell but i what i can tell you honestly is that it feels like a 
tremendous responsibility when someone's been given a tremendous capability, right? To sit there and not use it feels like the emptiest thing on earth. And so um, I guess for me, it's, it's a, a compromise of pushing boundaries and going where no one's gone before, right? That great Sagittarian quest um, along with also remembering to play and have fun and, you know, like being okay with just shrugging shoulders and closing my computer for the day and doing what I want. And so I think that's, that's the way that I've been able to balance um, the intensity, which is scripted, you know, from my astrology chart into who and how I am as a human. And yeah, I don't, I don't have answers, but I am on the quest seeking for them. I can tell you that. Okay. I'm going to start taking some questions from the, <laughs> the audience. I've talked around enough. I'll, I'll take some uh, uh, just to let you know, she's also an astrologist. So, um, so Aaron wanted to know what are some of the ways that we as individuals can improve our overall sense of? I gotta, my eyes are not drinking. I can make this big, bigger neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity. Develop yeah. all of the human quotients like IQ, EQ, SQ, CQ, AQ, and uh, I guess more Qs. I don't even know what all those cues are, and you have to school me. Um, yeah, so by pushing yourself, which is the conversation that we just had with Robert, that's how. If you want to create change, then you have to put yourself constantly in uncomfortable situations. And this is what I did traveling the world for 15 years, largely being the minority everywhere I went, learning new languages, you know, throwing myself constantly outside of my comfort zone, whether it's in new industries or um, amongst new people or whatever the story might be. And um, you have to put yourself out of your comfort zone. And so I think a really good practical way to start, and thank you, Aaron, for making this practical, um, I can tend to speak on the meta, is by, um, I have a whiteboard right here, you can get a big piece of paper, whatever you want in your house and write all the things in your life, right? So um, my brother teaches the permaculture of polyamory and he, uh, he teaches about a relational garden. So all the people in your life, right? Do they keep you safe, right? Are they yes men? Or do they tell you the hard truths and challenge you and support you when you want to go further and hold as accountability buddies for your growth? Um, so a relational garden can really help. Um, we we put out at the Institute, and I would love all of you to get access to these. Maybe, Robert, I can send to you um, sure. questions of, of kind of a workshop that you can hold with. We have one for parents. We have one for romantic relationships. I'm just this morning, 6 a.m., I was making one for friendship. Um, and we have an index where you can kind of assess where you are in your life of of like how much mindfulness, awareness, consciousness, emotional intelligence, whatever the fuck you want to call it, you're putting towards um, these different areas of your life. And so um, relationships are definitely one. And then there's your daily activities. You know, when you get up in the morning, are you laying in bed and, and you know, scrolling through your phone? Are you pressing snooze? Like what's happening in your life? Are you keeping yourself comfortable or numb? Those are often two friends there, comfort and numb or are common common allies or are you allowing yourself to um be pushed or push yourself and um i really appreciate my, mel robbins's five second rule of when you think oh i should be doing this right now five four three get off your bum and start just start don't think just go it's very much an aries concept um and so to create new neuroplasticity you have to do things differently that's the simple answer to your question 
and um, whether that's brushing your teeth with your other hand or whether that is keeping the lights off when you get up in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom. One of the, one of the classes at um, our institute is neuroaerobics. Right, these little aerobic, aerobic exercises that you can do for your brain. Um, I'm a big proponent of Duolingo. They don't pay me. I wish that they did to be an ambassador. Um, but every single day I'm on there for at least 10, if not 20 or 30 minutes, you know, studying language. Because, I mean, it, you, you remember what it's like, hopefully, to be in school and be a kid and constantly be tested or having exams that you have to pass, right? Having to use your head to think about how to solve problems. Um, and at this very di- direct way, language is an incredible um, modality or arena where we can create new, new neuroplasticity. And it is shown that those who are bilingual, trilingual, you know, and more um, are able to solve problems at large in life at a greater scale. And um, yeah, and it just has to do with being able to look through other perspectives than your own. And this was a lot of my training as an anthropologist. It's like, okay, how do we take off the goggles that we've looked at to see the world, right? For example, in the West, we see the world through the lens of science. Well, you go to shamans in the Amazon, and uh, this is a Wade Davis quote, he's who inspired me to, to do my master's in ethnobotany. He talks about uh, going out with indigenous elders and uh, they identify 18 varieties of ayahuasca, which he would, you know, in a lab only see as one. And he says, how do you differentiate them? And they say, don't you know anything about plants? We go out under the full moon and they sing to us in different keys. (laughs) Yeah. And so this is this is the engagement of the ability to really take off whatever glasses you've been looking at to see the world and pick up a whole new paradigm of how to view existence. And that flexibility is the ultimate neuroplasticity because the question that I've asked in the health world and I'll ask in every world that I'm in probably until the day that I die in this lifetime is how do you know what you think you know? And until we can get to that place of humility, that's like, oh, wow, like how do I know what I think I know? You know, I'm unless we're willing to question everything at all moments, then we don't have an avenue to be able to build neuroplasticity. Often we're just kind of like rerouting the same, um, the same pathways that are there. And so, um, yeah, I mean, there's so many buzzwords. Neuroplasticity is one of these new buzzwords, but it's all, you know, it's all ancient stuff that you can read in Zen books of consciousness, you know, from 500 BC. And so, Another question, this time from uh, actually from my brother in Belgium. When you are not fasting, what do you like eating? Mm. All right, let's go there, Robert's brother. Um, I love eating giant salads, giant salads. Um, I love leafy green vegetables, you know, some fresh cold pressed olive oil. Um, maybe a little sea salt or Himalayan salt and pepper, otherwise not needed, sometimes put spice on them, like giant family-sized salads. Um, uh, yeah, I eat a lot of squash, acorn squash, pumpkin, different things like this, roasted. Um, I eat a tremendous amount of fruit. So I'm not talking like your banana and half an apple at lunch. I'm talking like four apples, six bananas, like really eating a tremendous amount of water containing fibrous matter. Um, and in my years as a career colon hydrotherapist managing colonics clinics all over the world, um, that is, you know, the clinical setting where you get to see someone's shit. 
And when you see what comes out of someone, you understand um, the plight of constipation that we're in, constipation, congestion, just being kind of um, deprived of movement, of real movement, whether that be emotional movement or like, you know, hey, we've had this interaction and I've already cried with you guys. Like, how much are we allowing ourselves to become alive? And that's directly reflected into how much our colon is alive, how much peristalsis we have moving through the system. And water-containing fibrous matter is what bulks up the stool to move things through, but also then give space for detoxification for any elements. And I mean, there's 89 synthetic chemicals found in mother's breast milk today. The amount of toxicity that we're holding in our body unintentionally from just being a human in the 21st century world is uncanny. It's never been seen before. And the modern human experiment that we're running is one that we're probably going to look back on and be really sad about. And so um, the ability to detox every day involves tremendous amount of fruits and vegetables three liters of water, because that's the amount of water that your body uses and loses just by waking up in the morning. And again, I said, you know, moving your bowels once per meal per day. So I eat, and this is one of our t-shirts at the Institute. I eat to keep up my pooping habit. (laughs) (laughs) I just eat to keep up my pooping habit. Right. So it's, um, and that, and I know so many of you get pleasure from food. We have all our foods out there and the gastronomie, the art form of food. Um, But it's really important that we allow that to be, a minority of our eating habits and not the majority, because as we've seen, it creates a tremendous amount of stagnance in the body, in the mind, um, in our ability to do anything like pave new neural pathways to be happy. Um, and yes, there is happiness in food. There's a tremendous dopamine hit that we happen that happens when we um, when we do things like eat sugar, right? White powder. It's the same thing that happens when you snort cocaine. It's a dopamine shot from the brain, and whether it's fat or sugar. Um, it is addictive by all means. And the way in which it's being dosed today in processed foods is um, more addictive than anything's ever been before. And I mean, I don't have to tell you guys about obesity, um, but look around. Like, it's just, this is this is real. And so until we take back that agency and um, take power over our food, like Robert, the other night when you said I sat, I, you know, I sat there with my son and my wife at at dinner, and I didn't want to eat, and and that is you taking back power, and that's also the program that we run at the initiation is, it's so much about um, doing it in your own home and doing it where it's hardest because that's what's going to create the lasting change. You know, I ran tropical retreats all over the world, fasting retreats where people they came and they made the change, but then they went home and they went back into the same habits, and so. Um, we really like to to ground this down. So to answer your question, brother, um, <laughs> I would say that uh, I eat a, a plant based diet. I mean, I mean, when I went vegan 15 years ago, you know, it was for the environment. I was an environmentalist, a huge environmentalist. And it was the biggest impact that I could make. Um, and then. After that, only did it become about health. And um, I've never really been an animal rights activist, but with Generation Z and the shit that they're pulling, I mean, it's incredible when when you really peel back um, the layer and you look at factory farms all over the world. I mean, obviously, it's worse in North America and all throughout the Latin American um, peninsula as well um, and continent, but uh, it's bad everywhere if you look at how we treat animals and you know, I love animals. You guys love animals. That's part of being human. Um, and, and until we can like be okay with what we're eating and that's more like hunting 
and killing your own meat, um, then we're ultimately out of integrity. And so for me, again, as with most things in life, it's an issue of integrity. And so um, I eat plants. I have huge muscles. I build muscles really fast, really easily. Um, all of the the myths that we know about protein and all these other things are, are just that, they're myths. And, um, you know, I'm super healthy on on every kind of testing scale that you would look at. And I would credit that to a plant-based diet as well as um, an ability to self-regulate on a nervous system level and a practice of long-term fasting regularly. And enough pooing. And enough um, pooing. Yes, Robert. Daniela had a very good comment. She said, could we please have a big hug and a love button emoji at the bottom? I'm going to suggest that to the IT developers around the world. Thank you, Daniela. Yeah. Um, Jacob wants to know, <laughs> what would happen if more of us as a global society were to truly come alive with embodiment and mindfulness? Paint a picture of what that might look like. Yeah. Jacob is a filmmaker. I mean, I want to know what that would look like as well. And that's kind of what I'm questing to find out. But my guess is that those movies that you see where everyone's just kind of, it's like almost everyone's on a microdose of psilocybin or something. Everyone's just a little happy, you know? I think that's what the world could be like where you walk outside and, you know, you see a human and, and you are so integrated in your own human story and you're not ruminating over what happened that day or what your worries are, or what your fears are, that like you're at peace, right? You're in integrity and you can look at that human and be fully present, right? So presence is a big buzzword as well, especially in the field of emotional intelligence that's coming around. You're present enough that you can feel into that other person, put yourself in their shoes, um, like feel into their heart, really make true human connection. And that's um, that's what I attempted to do at the beginning of here when it's like, I see you and I hear you, Omar and Janelle and Sylvie and Daniela and all you humans who are here, like willing to listen. Like, who is this young girl in her 30s? Like, what does she think she knows? Like, I got shit to do, you know? And it's like, no, we're here because we realize that we're just human and that all humans have work to do. And so what would that look like, Jacob? I mean, I would say... It would look like a world, as I said, where, where it would seem like everyone's tripping on mushrooms all the time because they were just happy and fulfilled, but also ready to cry at any moment and um, felt good in their systems, felt fulfilled in their bodies, weren't, weren't really held in by shame and armor and like a front or boundaries or, or a feeling of unsafety, but rather could be there with whatever comes trusting. I mean, that's the ultimate. It comes down to trust, right? Most of us have trust issues, right? And uh, when we take a second and de-armor and like, you know, the, the, the really sensitive, gentle parts of our human body are our abdomen and our throat, right? You slit those, you're done. And so what does it take for us to be like this and to be comfortable here? And in just like an embodiment level, and all of you watching can do that with me, Robert, do it with me. Do it for the audience. Go like this. Oh. Just, just do that action and see what comes up in your body. And see what it would take. My neck. <laughs> see what it would take for you to be comfortable there, mm -hmm. and for you to, uh, on some level, settle into that sense of receptivity, and that sense of softness, and that sense of openness. Right. So we talk about an open heart and these kinds of things. But if people walked around like that a lot more than like this, right? You know, people like this. 
Right. That, the hunch, especially with technology today and all these things, um, we would have a completely different world because there's, I mean, there's nervous system tissue. There's a nervous system plexus around your heart um, all the way to the back. And as we change the positioning of our body, we're changing the communication to that nervous system tissue, which changes the messages and the signaling sent up to our brain, which changes the state of our autonomic nervous system. Remember, rest and digest parasympathetic versus stress response, flight or fight, sympathetic. And um, the deep breath can get us there. And so what would it look like to, to, to walk around in a world of healthy humans? I mean, can I curse here? Because that was the second time that I did it. And I was like, <laughs> um, it, it would be amazing. It would be incredible. The human species is a very special species. And I, I mean... I think that canines are also incredibly special, <laughs> um, but humans have such a dexterity to create and do and author, literally write and express and love. We have such a tremendous capacity to love and we tap into maybe 1% of it. And so what could happen if we revealed ourselves to ourselves? And this is the ultimate spiritual teachings, right? This is self-realization. I think a tremendous amount of magic could happen and like tomorrow all of the problems that we have could be fixed. And this is why I went to COP26. The climate crisis is a crisis of consciousness. And so is everything else. Disease is a crisis of consciousness. You know, divorce is a crisis of consciousness. And um, yeah, if I'm going to go really deep into the deep end, <laughs> Uh, the field of non-duality, which is what's brought forth through Vedanta and trust and connection to some higher source and purpose in your life. Um, that that field of knowing and trusting that whatever happens, happens for a reason. And that everyone is truly conspiring in your favor. That when we step into that non-duality where there's no more morality or judgment of right and wrong and good or bad, rather there just is. Right? Something's happened, something's before us. And in that we can engage with the complexity. The minute that we try to label it as right or wrong or good or bad or responsible or irresponsible or whatever duality you want to put or prescribe to it, right? That's the moment that we've lost because we've paralyzed our ability to engage with complexity and say, okay, like what's actually happening here? What's happening in my sphere? How does this have to do with other things that have happened in my life before, right? Where have I seen this situation before? Where have I felt this way before? How can I take agency over what's happening in my life? Because it's playing out at the microcosmic level inside of me. And that's why I'm seeing it. I'm like at a macroscopic level outside of me. And then how can I show up differently? How can I show up a little more integrated in integrity, a little more honest with myself and everyone else every single subsequent day until we all make that commitment as humans who knows? But that's that's answering a few questions you guys had of how to make it practical. What am I doing with the tribe of Jedi warriors? And, and Can I take could... one more question because I'm conscious we're coming toward the end and you have a busy schedule after that. Um, did the pandemic help or hurt? My work? Um, or in general? In general. I mean, you've just, like, you've asked a dualistic question. Did it help or hurt? I, like, who the fuck am I to, to analyze that? I think any analyst is very presumptive. Hmm. I trust. And so I know that it was meant to happen. You know, as an astrologer, 2020, the astrology that we saw in March 2020 is something that I'd been studying for four years. We hadn't seen planets like that in 4,000 years. And so this is a tipping point 
in human reality. And I mean, astrology can be esoteric and you can roll your eyes and do whatever, or you can just look at it as a science and be able to track back every major world event um, and other certain predictive things. I'll give you one right now. Like I'm fairly sure there will be a massive financial crash by April next year or in April next year. And that has to do with planetary movements and what's happened in the past when those have, you know, been in the places they are. Um, and so did it hurt or help? I mean, we are, we are evolving and whether that is evolving to our own self-destruction, which is a very possible reality or whether we are evolving to um, a world that is like everyone's on that microdose of mushrooms, integrated, happy, willing, able, and we're creating together the world that we want to be in, you know, whatever path we take or the millions of other options that, that, you know, I don't have the presumption to pretend I know about it happened. And so instead, I'm willing to engage in complexity with the world as it is today and to see the, the, the exacerbation of the starvation for human connection and the desire to be healthier or the way in which, you know, tons of people have put on a bunch of weight and gotten unhealthy and how that just starts again, uh, a desire to become healthy. And like, there's no good or bad or right or wrong about it. It happened. It is. And we are. And so who do we want to become? We're coming to the end. How can this audience listening here or YouTube live or the replay, how can they help you? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think you have those answers. I'm not very good at asking for help. So um, I'm not asking you to ask for help. Right. I'm asking you what can they do that might help you? Oh, definitely. Just show up more in integrity every day. I mean, that's not helping me. That's helping everyone. How can we actually apply these things and not just have this be, you know, you've spent your last hour talking about theory. How can we actually start to take some of our own medicine and say like, hey, okay, how can I show up a little more humble today? How are we all learning together? What do I want to create? Let me take that inventory of what's in my life. And when we do that on our own self-work, we help everyone, myself included. Um, and if this mission inspires you in, in any way, get involved. Like we have more than enough, you know, opportunities to get involved in, in any way, shape or form. Um, Andy, you're a great soul. And I'm very, very grateful for all the kind work and generosity that you have shown, not only me, but other people. Thank you all. Uh, Andy, thanks again. I really appreciate that. And I'll uh, I'll send you the question. We didn't get to all of the questions, but I'll send you the question, and you can always follow up. If you have any questions, Andy is very approachable. So Yeah, reach out to me on LinkedIn. That's probably not the best. All the social media platforms, Institute for Aliveness. Um, okay. Robert can give you my personal email. Or and I will push on the love button or the hug button to, uh, to run the world. Thanks again to everyone. Stay well, Andy. Enjoy. Bye-bye. Hey, did you know that it's enrollment season at TIFA? That means that we are currently seeking, headhunting, looking for potentially you. That means that we start every January, the first week of January, our enrollment for our 18-month program. This is our deep dive. It is the highest course at TIFA. It is the advanced course and the finishing course, the finishing school, if you will, for high-achieving practitioners looking to make a difference in the world. TIFA is here to create a standards body in the worlds of wellness and consciousness and really self-work. And so if you're ready for that next up-level in your life, Make sure to make an appointment with me, Andy, and let's talk to see if perhaps you're a fit.
How is listening to that for you? If you learned from or moved by the episode, pay it forward. Go to Apple now and leave a five-star review so others can benefit. Join the Institute for Aliveness for a one-week transformational fasting experience. Consider getting an astrology reading from Andy or enroll in the one-year health coach certification course. Whatever you do, don't let this learning pass you by. Do something now to impact your lifestyle for good.